Good morning, Chapel Point. I'm Jim Jeffrey, and one of the pastors here. Uh, glad to have you here worshiping with us. And for those that are worshiping from home, we welcome you to this first Sunday of the Advent season. Advent is a word that means um, the, the coming or the arrival, uh, speaking of a king. The word in the New Testament that's used in the same way talked about an emperor coming into a city and being welcomed and celebrated by the citizens. And so Christmas for us is not only a time of the coming of our Savior, but the coming of our Sovereign. See, Jesus as Messiah is the living Word of God as a prophet. He's our priest who offers our redemption, and he is our king who has come to rule over us. And we welcome him in that way. The theme of the Bible, friends, is the glory of God through the redemption and rule of Jesus Christ. That's the overarching message of the entire Bible. The glory of God through the redemption and rule of Jesus Christ. See, Christ redeems us, meaning he purchases us back from our sin in order to rule over us. He, he redeemed Israel from their bondage in Egypt to bring them to Mount Sinai so that he would become their king and their ruler. And he redeems us from our sin so that he will become our ruler and our sovereign. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 just sets that in, in clarity for us. Look at these words from Scripture. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus took our cross so that he could wear his crown. Please understand this. The purpose of redemption is not so that we could live for ourselves. If we believe that we are the king of our lives, friends, we're deceived. Because the reality is that the kingdom of darkness that Paul talked about is an alignment of the kingdom of self, the kingdom of sin, and the kingdom of Satan. But Jesus came to rescue us from the tyranny of evil and to rule over us in his gracious kingdom of righteousness. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I go to a store, um, I have to look for the signs to find what I'm looking for. Maybe to go to a Meyer, or, or certainly, I can't, can't remember how many times I've gone into Lowe's to find something like in the plumbing, and you can wander up and down all the aisles, or you can look for the signs. And if you look for the signs, you can get there a whole lot faster. Or you can find somebody and, and, that works there and say, where is the plumbing? And he just points to the sign right overhead. Finding the signs makes it a whole lot easier. Well, listen, in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of signs of the ultimate king and his coming. Hundreds of those signs of the ultimate king. And um, just like when we built this building, we had to put signs in order for people to find their way to a restroom or to the, to the children's area. Or on the road, there are signs that are, that are helpful for you to find the right highway or to find the right location. Um, I, I kind of like it in my GPS now that actually has a picture of the sign that's already on the road. So you can see it on the screen and you can see it on the road. I have no excuse for getting lost anymore. Signs help to point you in the right direction. And the signs that we have in the Old Testament point us to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate king. So I want to share with you four signposts in the Old Testament to help point to this one who's come to rule over us as our ultimate king. First of all, the signs of the dynasty of the ultimate king. Signs of the dynasty of the ultimate king. Now, dynasty is a word that is used for the, the family legacy of a ruling, um, a ruling king or queen. 
in England, they had the, the dynasty of those who have followed in the family line. And there are signs in the Old Testament that point to Jesus coming to be the one who's the rightful king. For instance, he's going to rule from the seed of Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. This is what God promised in his covenant to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And listen to this. This was a promise to Abraham. Kings shall come from you. God promised Abraham all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant that there were going to be kings that were going to come and be a dynasty from him. And then later, more clarity comes in Genesis 49 when, when we read this about the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49, verse 10, says not only is it going to be of the lineage of David in this dynasty, but it's going to be actually of the tribe of Judah. More clarity given. You fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I'd like to ask you to turn there in your Bibles because this is a profound passage about the, the signpost of the ultimate king. In the story in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's now established in his kingdom. He's defeated a number of his enemies. He's now ruling in Jerusalem. And he's living in a beautiful palace with paneled walls. And he looks across to the Temple Mount and he, he sees there the, that God is still dwelling on the, in the tabernacle, the tent from the wilderness. And it's like David has this mental moment and, and he says, um, there's something wrong with this picture. I'm living in a I'm living in a palace, and God's living in a tent. And not only was, was he wanting to honor God in that way, but you need to understand that the temple was not only the place in which God was worshipped, but it was a place where God ruled. And David had a clear understanding that the ultimate king of Israel wasn't him. The ultimate king was God. I hope you understand, friends, that you are not the ultimate king of your life. If you are, there's something very wrong. And David said, I need to build a temple to God. And he goes to the prophet, and the prophet comes back and says, basically, good idea, until God intervenes and says, bad idea. Matter of fact, David, you've been a man of blood, and I'm not going to have you build a temple. Your son's going to build a temple. But David, because it was on your heart, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom. And listen to the, the words of God here. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and, and it, God says, and your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So in, in all of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is basically saying, David, I took you from following the sheep. I made you to be my, my ruler. And I want you to know that I'm going to make sure that there's going to be from you an everlasting kingdom. Look what David's response in verse 25 he said, oh, now, Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. I will build you a house. And so David claims the promise of God. A promise to Abraham, there's going to be kings. A promise to Judah, the scepter's not going to depart from you. A promise to the house of David, there will not lack someone to sit upon your throne forever. 
No wonder when you get to Matthew's gospel, in the, in the first chapter when you have this genealogy, I know you love reading genealogies in the Bible, don't you? Just really just can't wait to read a genealogy. But in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy ties Christ's lineage back to Abraham and David through the line of Judah, showing the fulfillment of what we've just seen. This is a signpost for us that the ultimate king is Jesus Christ, and he alone is the ruler. He redeems you to rule over you, friends. And so the sign of the dynasty of the king, also the sign of the dominion of the ultimate king. Turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Daniel. Prophet Daniel. You know the story of Daniel, that uh, this is in the period of the Babylonian captivity. The Nebuchadnezzar had come against the city of Jerusalem, taken people captives. And, and among the captives, he would choose young men who had great potential to be part of his government. He'd give them the education of the Babylonians. He would train them. And among them was Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as they're just young men being trained and just entering into their government responsibility as some of the wise men of Babylon, one night the king has a dream. Um, when I have a dream like that, it's probably because of too much pizza and ice cream. I'm not sure what the Nebuchadnezzar had the night before. But he's, he's got this dream. And in the dream, he, he gathers together all the wise men of Babylon and said, listen, here's the deal. I want you to tell me what my dream was. And I want you to tell me the interpretation of it. The wise men respond and say, oh, that king, you tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar says, you're stalling, and all of you are going to be killed if you don't tell me the interpretation and the dream. And the wise men say, there's, there's no king that's ever asked us of, your, of his wise men. And so he's making plans to kill all his wise men, and Nebuchadnezzar had the authority to do that. Daniel and his friends gather together and they pray and seek the wisdom of God, and God reveals that to them. And so Daniel comes in before Nebuchadnezzar and says, King, I want to tell you, because there is a God who reveals secrets, I want to tell you exactly what you dreamed. And in Daniel chapter 2, he describes exactly what he saw. I'm start at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. The image mighty, exceeding, and brightness stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and its arms silver, its middle and its thighs of bronze, its legs were of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Oh, look at verse 34. This is the key. And you looked, and a stone was cut out by no human hand, no human agency. And it struck the image on its feet and iron of clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, Daniel in verse 44 gives the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. After telling him, you're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, because you have absolute authority. And there's going to come another kingdom after you, which was the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians. They're the silver. And there's going to come the Greek kingdom after, with, with Alexander the Great. He's going to be the, the thighs of, of bronze. And then there's going to come another kingdom, which ultimately would be the Roman Empire, made out of iron. And then there's going to be the European development after that of iron and clay mixed together. Do you know what's happening here? 
God is giving a preview of ancient history before it happened. It's called Bible prophecy. And God's, God's telling him, here's what's coming in ancient history. Re, friends, one of the reasons I believe that the Bible is true when it comes to unfulfilled prophecy, because it's been true in the past in terms of prophecy. You can trust the word of God. So he's giving an interpretation now of this, and then he says here in verse 44, in those days of those kings, meaning all of those ancient kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. In other words, there's not going to be a subsequent kingdom. It's going to break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it's going to stand forever. Just as you saw, the stone was cut out from a mountain of no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. In other words, there's coming a kingdom pictured by this rock that was cut out without human agency. It's going to crush all the kingdoms of this world. It's going to fill the entire world. And friends, that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And his advent, his first advent, was in that time of the Roman Empire, and he came. But there's coming a future kingdom of Jesus Christ in his second coming. And so Jesus is seen as the ultimate king. One day in reading through the book of Daniel, I noticed that in this same chapter, Daniel refers to, Eb, uh, to um, Nebuchadnezzar as king of kings. And it shocked me. Nebuchadnezzar, king of kings. That's a term that's used for Jesus in the book of Revelation, that he's king of kings. So I began to explore, what did it mean for Daniel to refer to Nebuchadnezzar as king of kings? It meant that he was an emperor. It meant that he was a king who ruled over other kings. So when Jesus in the book of Revelation is referred to as king of kings, you know what God is saying? God is saying, he's not just a king, he's the ultimate king. He's not just a king, he's an emperor. And he doesn't just rule over the nations of this world, but he rules over angels, and he rules over creation, and he rules over the universe, and he rules over his church. And friends, I want you to know he has that kind of dominion. Who is more worthy to rule your life than Jesus Christ? Needed to think of ourselves as puny humans shaking our fist at Almighty God and saying, I'll rule my own life. The folly and the foolishness when this one who is the rock cut out without hands is going to rule the entire earth. Friends, get with the program. Jesus is king. He's king of kings. And he will rule this world. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess to him. I want to get used to doing that now. How about you? I want that to be true of my life now. Because he is my ultimate king. He's the emperor of the universe. Who alone is worthy to be my king? Friends, Christmas is not just about a little cute baby being born in a manger. Christmas is about a sovereign who came to rule your lives. And he redeemed you to rule over you. Friends, do you need to understand this? The story of the Bible is not centered on you and me. The story of the Bible is centered on the glory of God through the redemption and rule of Jesus Christ. And he redeems his people, so he rules over his people. We need to get that part of the story. We need to understand that that's where it fits to us. But what about the qualifications of the coming king? I'm so glad you asked. Turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Great Christmas passage. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Just unpack this with me. The qualifications of the ultimate king. 
Here's, here's a sign from the prophets. Isaiah's already said in Isaiah 7:14, this one who's going to be born is going to be born of a virgin, and his name's going to be called Emmanuel. But now he gives us the qualifications of that king. For unto us a child is born, that's his humanity. Unto us a son is given, that's his deity. He is God and man. He's qualified. The government shall rest upon his shoulder. In other words, he has the strength and ability to rule. Authority to rule. It said his name shall be called. Now check this out. Wonderful counselor. He has the wisdom to rule your life. Mighty God. He has the power to rule his world and your life. Everlasting Father, people get confused about that and saying, isn't that mixing the members of the Trinity? No, to a Jew, Father meant patriarch. And all the patriarchs died. Abraham died, Isaac died, Jacob died. Jesus is the ultimate patriarch that will never die. He's the, he's the, the, the one over all his people. And he is the Prince of Peace. In other words, he's the one who when he rules in our lives and when he rules in his world, there will be peace. He explains that in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, fulfilling that prophecy, and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it, and he's going to rule with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever, and the zeal of the Lord will perform it. Friends, listen. Nobody is more worthy to rule over his church and to rule over his world and to rule over our lives than Jesus, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He alone has the qualifications to be able to do that. He alone. There's none more worthy than Jesus to rule over those that he redeems. None more worthy than Jesus. You think about this. Friends, it, it just seems to me so clear that Isaiah is appealing to us. He's putting this sign up and saying, here's the one who has all the qualifications to rule your life. Then why? Why would I try to rule my own life? My own pride or my stubbornness? Why would I try to be my own ultimate authority if one with all these qualifications is willing to rule over me, my redeemer and ruler, Jesus? Why wouldn't I invite him to take the throne of my life? See, it says that of the increase of his government and peace. Anybody here that just longs for peace on earth? It's okay. As a Christian, you can long for peace on earth. It's okay. Do you know why there's not peace on earth right now? Do you know why there's wars and rumors of wars? Do you know why there's such conflict? Because Jesus Christ isn't ruling over this planet in the way that he will someday. But of his government and peace, there will be no end. Here's, here's a biblical principle that you can take home with you, okay? Wherever Jesus rules, there's peace. And wherever Jesus doesn't rule, there's no peace. If he doesn't rule over my emotions, I don't have peace. If he doesn't rule over my marriage, there's no peace. He doesn't rule over our household, there's no peace. Doesn't rule over my finances, there's no peace. The only place where you experience peace in your life is where Jesus Christ rules. And so we should invite the expansion of his kingdom within us and say, Lord, rule over every part of my life because it's only where you rule that I experience peace because you have the qualifications. 
There's another prophet I want you to turn to as we look at the sign of the majesty of the ultimate king. Matthew chapter, excuse me, Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Look beginning at verse 2. When the wise men came to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2 and they asked the question, where is he that is going to be born king of the Jews? It put the whole city into uproar, especially Herod, who was the, the king. And so Herod goes and asks the scribes, where is it that the Messiah king is to be born? And they knew. They quoted this passage, Micah chapter 5, starting at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, in the region of Ephrathah, who are too little, just a small little village among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me the one who's to be, now look at this, his sovereign majesty here, who's to be ruler in Israel. His coming forth is from old. He is, he is ancient of days. Before his birth, he existed in eternity past. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when he was in labor, is given forth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. In other words, those who rejected him will one day receive him. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. One of the pictures of a king was a, a shepherd. And if you had a good king, you had a good shepherd. He's going to shepherd his strength shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. So the prophecy here is giving to us a sign of where Christ was going to be born. He was going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? It means house of bread and Jesus is the bread of life. It was in Bethlehem where Rachel was buried, and he's the resurrection in the life. Bethlehem is the birthplace of David and his family, and he's the son of David. Bethlehem was a place of sheep and shepherds, and he's the lamb of God, and he is the shepherd of all. Bethlehem is a setting for the book of Ruth, and Jesus is the bridegroom, and he is also the, the Lord of harvest. All of that picture in Christ he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And yet in the Gospels, we read that Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. So God sovereignly had Caesar Augustus establish a taxation that required them to travel to Bethlehem, the house of their lineage, so that this prophecy would be fulfilled. Talk about a sign. The sign is that this majestic one, this one who stands in the strength of the Lord and shepherds his people, this one filled with majesty, this one who is the ancient of days, he is the one who is worthy to rule over our lives. You see, friends, listen. All signs point to Jesus. The dynasty of Abraham, the dynasty of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the dynasty of David. It all points to him. Christ came to display God's glory as redeemer and ruler. But the purpose of his redemption is to rule your life. Understand this, friends. He came to be king. All signs point to Jesus. The signs of the dynasty through Abraham and Judah, through David. The signs of his his sovereign dominion over all nations, the signs of his qualifications, the signs of even his birth in Bethlehem and the majesty that, that he demonstrates. All signs point to Jesus. I want you to imagine with me a moment that every one of us sitting here today have a throne in our heart. Our, our, your heart has a throne room. 
And the question is, who's sitting on the throne of your heart today? We've all heard the credit card commercial, what's in your wallet? The question today isn't what's in your wallet. The question is, who's sitting on the throne? We moved to, back to West Michigan. We lived in a uh, duplex for a little while. I want you to know that throne in your heart is not a duplex. There's only room for one. There's only room for one. There's only one that's worthy. The lamb who is your redeemer is the lion who is your ruler. The dictator of self will destroy your life. The tyranny of sin will ruin your relationships. The imposter Satan will bring you into bondage. But the rule of Christ as the ultimate king brings peace. The rule of Christ as the ultimate king is the purpose of God. The rule of Christ as ultimate king is a plan of human history. And all the signs point to him. Only Jesus has the divine right to rule on the throne of your heart. Only he has the authority. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Only he has the qualifications to rule your life. Only he deserves the majesty to rule over us. So friends, I plead with you this morning. Who is on the throne of your heart today? No questions more important. Jesus did not redeem you so that you could live for self and sin. Jesus redeemed you so that he would rule over your life in righteousness and peace. Invite him to take the throne every day. Invite him to be the ultimate authority of your life. That's why he came. That's why he died. And that's the only thing that makes any sense. So Christmas, friends, isn't about a cute baby in a manger. Christmas is about King of kings and Lord of lords who's come to rule our lives. So God, we... We repent of our self-rule. We repent of our sin. We repent of so much conflict in our lives that comes just because we want to have our own way. We cry out with the prophets that only you are worthy to be the ultimate king. O emperor of the universe, O king over angels and galaxies and this earth, and nations, and angels, and your church. We invite you to take the throne in our hearts today. Because only then can we experience the peace that you as the Lamb of God came to provide. And you as the Lion of Judah came to rule. In Jesus' name.